The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box and these are your headlines. The yen pops, the Nikkei sells off. This is the Bank of Japan loosens its yield curve control band. The uh, apparently surprise move is being seen as a first indication it could be reining in its ultra-loose monetary policy. Well, hopes of a Santa rally fading as Wall Street closes lower for the fourth straight day, setting major indices on pace to end December in the red as recession fears mount. Uh, shares in Meta slide after the EU charges the tech giant with breaching antitrust rules, opening the Facebook parent company up to a potential fine of almost $12 billion. And EU member states finally strike a deal on capping gas prices, agreeing a dynamic measure to come into effect from February. But the first cracks appear already, almost immediately, with Hungary hitting out at the agreement. I would like to make it clear that Hungary does not support the introduction of a price cap on natural gas under any circumstances. It is a harmful, dangerous and completely unnecessary measure. Morning. Very good morning. Stunned and shocked this morning. Stunned and shocked. But, but, but before we get know, into the stunned and shocked, let, let me give the German PPI first. I was going to tease people about what you were stunned and shocked we're stu- about. We are both stunned and shocked. Stunned and shocked. Well, we'll have that conversation in just a <laughs> second. And we'll have that with Lewis Costa, who's with us around the desk. Nice to see you, Lewis. Nice to Thanks see Thanks so you, much for nice joining us. Um, German PPI then, the uh, PPI number for uh, November, month on month has come in at negative 3.9%. So the expectation here, or, or the forecast, was for negative 2.5%. The number is, as you can see, significantly weaker, negative 3.9%. The year-on-year change, 30.6% was the expectation. The number has come in at 28.2% um, as a result of that outsized month-on-month move. Lewis, since I've introduced you, I mean, we are looking, we are looking here, oh, I should mention uh, you're with us from City. Uh, your focus is, is primarily on the emerging space, but um, you, like us, are looking at any indication of a, a hastening decline in inflationary pressures here. And this PPI number in Germany will be seized upon as further evidence that we are actually seeing some of these price pressures come down quite quickly. Would you read those figures in those terms? Absolutely, absolutely. We believe this is now a moment where the I call the PPI impulse or the influence of PPI in European, especially in Europe, right, given the energy shock we had three, four months ago. So this PPI impulse uh, will be diminished. So there will be more PPI influence um, in European P- uh, CPIs over the next two, three months. And then we'll see what happens with geopolitics. And, but, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of reflux and, uh, on the inflation environment now. And I do believe this is one of the reasons why we are now seeing this duration rally 
why portfolio managers out of the sudden decided to stop paying rates and decided to receive rates, decided to buy some bonds, mm. because that positioning was way too cautious in an environment where the CPI might decline a little bit. But let's be honest here. We are not talking about CPI going back to 2019 levels. It's a brand new regime. Cool. Should we move on to standard shock? Right. We'll, I, I, I we'll mean, talk about that. I mean, it's I, more I just, interesting it, German it's, PPI. It's, well, it's very ironic, isn't it? You wonder about the communication from the central banks here. We just had a, a Christine Lagarde, who I have never seen as hawkish before ever and talking and talking about you know this is not a bank that's going to pivot this is not pivoting that you're seeing blah 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 ironically that comes as we start to see some of these really significant shifts in the market's perception of perhaps where inflation is going shock and awe surprise we're surprised well I, do you know what i'm surprised we're surprised at, and i'm shocked at is how shocked and surprised and stunned uh, some of our peers in the industry are all but, i see this morning do you know what i think it is do you know what I think it is? Go on. I think they're bored. And I don't think they've got a headline. And I think they were thinking, do you know what? What yeah. are we going to do post US data last week, post the interest rate moves last week as well? And then they see this and suddenly everyone gets very excited because they've seen a market move on the back of it and they think, oh, we better be shocked and surprised. Shocked and surprised. Let, well, let's get into it. Let, as always, the audience uh, has to judge. It's not for us to lead the, lead the witness. But the Bank of Japan has announced it is tweaking its yield curve control band, allowing yields on 10-year sovereign bonds to fluctuate from their current range of plus or minus, and that's important, plus or minus 0.25% to plus or minus 0.5%. The move sending the Japanese yen higher, more than 2%, against the dollar. Elsewhere, Japan's central bank agreed to keep its benchmark rate steady at minus 0.1, even with inflation well above its target, currently sitting at 3.6%. You can see here live pictures of uh, Harahiko Kuroda, the Bank of Japan governor, who will be leaving in April, speaking on the back of the move. He's basically stressing the loosening of the yield curve band should not be interpreted as a change in policy, adding policy could even be eased further if necessary. So what exactly is the correct interpretation of this widening of the band. Right, just be very careful, everybody, before you over-interpret. The Japanese have done something which looks extreme and the markets responded immediately. Can we get the JGBs up, actually? That's one thing I want to show. I think we saw yield now bouncing up to 0.46% as well. So the market moved there. The equity markets moved as well. And I'll cover this in some detail. Now it's gone back down to 0 0.41, 0 0.407 on the 10-year paper as well. But there's a, there's a lot of caveats in here, and we'll try and cover this as well. But I just want to go through some of the Kuroda comments as well. The man you mentioned who is, of course, leaving in April. Some people are saying, oh, he's doing this to make the job of the next BOJ governor a bit easier. Maybe there's going to be some tweaking of the rules of, the, of what is going to govern the, the Bank of Japan's policy and their relationship of, with the Ministry of Finance and the government as well. So there's a lot of other stuff going on as well. But, but when, if Kuroda is to be taken at his word, and I think he has to be, he's one of the most experienced central bankers out there, he's been in place, I think, a decade next year, actually. And you and I have interviewed him a lot over the years as well. He says, look, I won't hesitate to ease monetary policy further if necessary. So the market's going, oh my God, this massive policy shock, massive policy change, widening the bands in both directions, as you keep pointing out as well. I won't hesitate to ease monetary policy further if necessary. 
He's talking about easing, not hawking, not hawking, not getting tighter, hawking. hawking. Uh, premature to debate specifics on BOJ's monetary policy framework review. Well, that hasn't stopped everyone doing that this morning. Uh, strategies, tools for monetary easing exit should be discussed at policy meetings if achievement on inflation target nears as well. And what is inflation? Core inflation is about 3.6% at the moment, yeah. but it's the wages side of it over in Japan they're thinking about as well. Uh, necessary to achieve 2% inflation target sustainably and in terms of of tandem with wage growth. And that's the point, in tandem with wage growth as well, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's more of the same there, but I see nothing nothing that says we are going to change our policy on interest rates as well. Mm. So there's that. And then there's the other point about the BOJs, um, the markets it's covering, and, and we'll come to Lewis on this now as well. Mm. Two points. One, uh, they own a vast amount of the ETFs on the Nikkei as well, some in the region of 60-odd percent, down from the peak of over 70 percent in 2017, but they still own over 60 percent of that. And they own roughly, what do you think, ladies and gentlemen, of the JGB market that's moving so aggressively today? I'm sure most of you know this by now. 70 percent. Lewis, your views on this? I mean, open question. Are you in my camp being a little bit cautious or are you actually thinking this is stunning reversal of policy that no, some people there's, are saying? No, there's, there's absolutely nothing uh, stunning on that. Um, you have to take uh, this uh, BOJ measure in the context of a positioning uh, of in dollar-yen that was obviously probably not expecting this tweak. It's a tweak. Obviously, it opens the window for some creativity here from portfolio managers, especially hedge funds who are heavily positioned in Dorian in the transition uh, of the BOJ leadership, Corona leaving, right? So that can open the way. But it's also very important, if you look at this statement, there's a lot of concern in the trading dynamics of JGBs in the market, given that, yes, the BOJ owns so much, right? Um, so giving a little bit more leeway of, you know, in the band of uh, JGB trading makes a lot of sense, right? In an environment where obviously volatility in the core or rates volatility in the core, it's coming down now, but we are elevated levels. So in a way, the, the, the BOJ is saying, you know what, let's allow JGB to, you know, trades. I mean, this disparity of volatility is so huge compared to everywhere else in the core. Mm. can be Eurogovies or can be U.S. Treasuries. So let's allow this gap to close down a little bit. But, and, and as you said, Steve, uh, they are saying, pretty much saying, if necessary, we buy more JGBs. Yeah. Right. So um, I, I definitely I call this a tweak. Let, well, well, let's shoot this fox uh, for certain this time. Um, so Steve talked about the inflation rate, 3.7 percent, which by our standards in the West looks very modest. But it is an eight year high for the Japanese. And it's something that they haven't seen in their economy for three decades. So is there any way that we could, in, because that's ultimately what the market is saying, this is a hawkish move and that's why the yen is higher here. Is there any way that you see this as about fighting inflation in Japan? No, no. no. Uh, I okay. think it's, it's a lot more the infrastructure and the dynamics of GGP trading and you know, the gap between volatility rather than anything else. And let's be honest here, as I said, we expect inflation in the core to alleviate the pressure a little bit over the next three to five months, yeah. right? We are not expecting you know, uh, new peaks, right? The story in the long term can be, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's another story. This mm. is, I mean, that we can, we can discuss, I mean, over the next three years. Yeah. But for now, it's, uh, it's a lot more GGB trading.
Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was some talk that maybe uh, Prime Minister Kishida might look at shifting the mandate of the Bank of Japan. I think there were denials all round. But again, you wouldn't see this as an attempt by the governor who's just about to depart to get ahead. But, I mean, historically in Japan, as you know, there's been a, an ongoing spat between the BOJ and the Ministry of Finance. And at different times, that relationship has worsened and it's had consequences for policy and sometimes it's improved. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some in the LDP are getting frustrated with the BOJ at this point and feel it's necessary to tweak the mandate. Look, I mean, criticism towards the BOJ will always exist, and especially now, when between now and April, when Kuroda leaves, we are going to be bombarded with that, right? The BOJ is the pioneer of interventionism, and, and it actually gave the lights, gave the headlights, you yeah. know, to uh, all the central banks at the core, like ECB and Fed. Uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter here, you know, over the next two years, we are going to debate a lot about inflation targets and the current stance of inflation and inflation expectations. Everywhere else, we are far, far away, miles away from any target you can think of. Yeah. Anything that was advertised to us until, up until 2019, we are miles away. So this is going to be a very important debate. I'm just going to update the viewers very quickly on the other markets, and then we want to get some calls from you. Because I know, I mean, is it really indiscreet of me to tell the viewers that you said that oh, my biggest headache is trying to get 2023's outlook together Absolutely. as well? <laughs> no, I mean, I, mean, I don't think months. it's too indiscreet of me to say you, so. But it explains my grey hair. That's what yeah, gray, gray. You and the rest of the industry. <laughs> Lewis Costa, how long have I known you? 15 years? 15 years? Don't talk to me about grey hair, mate. All right? You, I had long, brown, flowing locks when you first knew me. <laughs> oh, kind of. Right, a quick look at the US markets. We'll get back to Lewis. Uh, no, they were down across the board. It was the technology stocks that bore the brunt. The NAHB data, the first of four or five pieces of uh, home uh, building looking data this week, was suitably downbeat, as low as we've seen uh, in the early 2020s as well, in the early 2020s. So not very strong there as well. It was the technology stocks, though, that got a bit of a beating as well. Uh, Meta, I already talked about that in the headlines. Down 4% plus on the back of concerns about an EU investigation. The watchdog uh, getting a bit more draconian there as well. Walt Disney, I'll come to this one, 4.77%. Haven't seen Avatar 2 yet. Definitely going to see it as well. Um, first one was amazing, of course, although I did see someone saying it, it's a beautifully shot movie, but the review said a little bit superfluous. And that's the danger when you have such a big hit first time around. The concern is that it's not drawing in the numbers that some people hope. But I, I think it's going to be a blockbuster regardless. It's just a question of how much. And as I say, technology stocks down across the board. A quick look at European futures. I'll just have a very quick look at that as well and see where they're trading for you down across the board on the European markets. Right, Jeff, back to Lewis. Yeah, let's pick up, Lewis. Um, one of the calls for next year that I'm seeing a lot um, in the outlooks for 2023 is to load up on EM debt. And the argument being that debt is going to perform better next year than equities. We're going into some kind of meaningful slowdown in the Western world led by the United States. But actually, there's going to be financial stability and you might see emerging debt perform better if you're looking to improve the yield outlook for your portfolio. How do you feel about EM debt? And if you like it, where should we go? The problem of uh, making a call for 2023 is that people don't realize that we might have three or four different mini regimes uh, next year. We do believe that at least we are going to have three regimes first. Um, 
improving in risk budget all across the board. People were so cautious. People were short duration and etc. They were not buying EM at all. And I think this is going to take us eventually up until February, March. The problem is that could be a U.S. recession here and in the works. Right. And, and this is probably happening, you know, around Q2 towards the mid uh, of 2023. And that can be a little bit of a shake up in risk. I mean, look at equities. Equities are not smelling amazing. And I think that we are probably going to see a continuation of this story and eventually the peak of the tension mid next year. And then once we clear, right, I mean, given the stance of spreads, high yield spreads, European spreads, we might actually close the year quite nicely. But it's very important. We have to compartmentalize risk and uh, um, along uh, the year and in 2023 because it's not going to be a straight line. So we can't just lock in an EM debt buy now, chasing yield, and then know that that trade is going to look even better through the year as the dollar continues to weaken on recession and inflation. Fears. I think now we have an oil tanker type of move. Right. There's momentum in the way that portfolio managers are buying fixed income once again because the growth environment has changed. We were just discussing BOJ and Kuroda saying, look, you know, I might ease further. So don't think I'm being ultra hawkish here. So that's the story. And this is probably going to dominate um, in Q1. But, you know, let's be honest here. Um, growth might lead to recession and mild recession. This discussion about my recession, hard recession, I think it's a little bit infantile, right? I mean, it's when recession hits, S&P will bleed and how risk will trade. I think that's a terrific point. And it leads me to the point that these markets want quick moves. It wants quick rally from the downtick. It wants a quick end to the recession. It wants a quick end to inflation. And any student of history, and we'll all become more students of history now looking at what happened in the 70s especially, will show you that, for instance, the inflation shock that started in 73-4 finished in 1982 eight years. The market that fell in 1929 carried on falling for years and years to come for that. The recession that started thereafter uh, lasted the most part of the 1930s and it was a tragic set of events that actually finally got many economies out of it as well. This modern day 21st century um, uh, mantra that things are going to bounce back very quickly or they're going to fall very quickly. Well, I think things take a lot longer to pan out and I'm not sure our audience is fully aware of that. It's not mean reverting. We are in a different regime. I was discussing um, a, a couple of minutes before, right? So we, were, we are in an environment where inflation is not going back to the targets. So what central banks are going to tell you? Right. Some central banks in my region, in EMEA, they are saying, I'm so sorry, we are only converging to the target in 2025. What do I do with that if I'm holding bonds? Right. So now, fair enough, there's a reflux and the reflux might take a quarter or so, but it's not going back to the mean. So what do our viewers do who love a passive investment? They love a correlated set of assets, everything moving stately in the right direction as well. And the fund managers out there, and I, I love some of you fund managers, guys, but 90% of you do not beat an index time after time. And that is a fact. That's not me saying it. So we have to go a little bit more riskier in some of our assets. We have to look bottom up rather than top down, don't absolutely, we? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, as uh, you probably read our outlook, the one message we are giving to investors, yeah, um, I'm so sorry, if you are passive investing, if you are like an index investor, you are probably not in a good place. 
because the, the, that will be a lot of idiosyncrasy. There will be a lot of many ad hoc stories, fiscal uh, dominance versus pol pol monetary policy dominance, and a dollar that, I mean, for now looks well-behaved, but once we hit Q2, the new regime of recession, it can get a lot worse. So uh, it's going to be a market for active investing. Yeah. Um, interesting, just looking at the notes, uh, we forecast total return of 5% for EMFX. I'll take 5%, but how volatile is that? Return it will get, you will get a lot more volatile, and, 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 and that's our point. I mean, the interesting thing that in, in emerging markets, there has been some restitution or replenishment of real yields. Look at Brazil, look at Mexico, right? And investors acknowledge that. Investors are taking this uh, to heart. And, and I believe that that can obviously help quite a lot, some of the currencies out there. So the outlook is definitely positive here, but you know, it's not a blanket investment type of thing, right? Maybe 30, maximum 40% of the M currencies, the liquid M currencies out there, actually had a real adjustment in real yields, right? Many currencies out there, especially in Asia, are still living in La La Land. Mm. Um, mm. Just a quick word on China. Recovery in China is one of your big bullets as well. A lot of people are very worried that there won't be recovery, and that's why, actually, of all the dovish um, policy making we've heard recently, and there's not a lot of it, uh, we have heard some dovish stuff from the Chinese in the last few days. It's the biggest question mark, Steve, and I tell you that you know um, the markets are now, and to be honest with you, I think that the markets are correct to trade the China reopening, which is happening now as we speak. Domestically, it's happening now. Uh, it's obvious. It's clear. It's there. And the, the, the destination seems to be quite obvious. But, you know, we understand that, uh, you know, uh, infection rates are rising and, and they might end up in something, you know, um, a lot worse than expected. So uh, trading China reopening forward, forward makes sense now. But the destination in April, May, this is still a little bit of a half question mark. For the time being, I think that, that makes sense. The underweighting Chinese equities and China complex was so huge. That was probably the biggest underweight in global macro up until October. I can yeah. honestly say, yeah. I love having this bloke around the desk yeah. again. Don't you think? The energy and the enthusiasm and Absolutely. the great calls. Well, woken me up. I know. There's anyone thing sure. I don't like about him? If, if there's a way that we could package him and sell him to people that just want to There's one thing about him that's quite annoying. He makes our suits look a bit shabby, doesn't he? Don't you think? I mean, look at him. Have you ever seen a more sartorially elegant man than Luis Costa? No. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's like the Cristiano Ronaldo of, CNBC, of City. Oh, no. Oh, no. no, 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 no. Let's not talk we, about I know football. we can't we talk are, about football, football about because our viewers will know that no. you're a Brazilian. I, I, from now on, I follow ice hockey. That's yeah. really I, I, I understand the Brazilian yeah. Tiddlywinks team's doing well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Luis Costa, have a wonderful holiday period. You too. Lovely to see you back around the desk. Yeah. We'll see you again next year. See you guys. Brilliant. Luis Brilliant. Costa, head of Simia Strategy over at City. Right, coming up on the show, China's tech giants face an uncertain year ahead as rising COVID cases hit hopes of a rapid reopening. We'll have more after the break. And if you were shocked and surprised by the Bank of Japan's <laughs> latest policy moves, stunned. stunned, well, you might want to check out the Squawk Box podcast. We had rather a lot to say about that. And a little morning. special for our guests now. We'll leave you pictures now from Buenos Aires, <laughs> where the World Cup winners, Argentina, arrived home to a hero's welcome.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. You feeling Christmassy? Uh, a little bit, getting there. Uh, a few I'll, days to go. I though. guarantee you that yeah. the next shot I show you in about a couple of minutes' time will okay. make you more Christmassy. You now, so. Adam's not going to do the reveal. Is it going to be Father Christmas? It's going to be Father Christmas with in presents? a bright red suit with a tree behind you. Okay. I promise you. <laughs> huh? I'm going to make you feel very Christmassy Good, I'm looking forward in to about this. a minute and a half's time. Uh, tech stocks in Hong Kong are lower amid fears of a COVID resurgence, uh, potentially dampening hopes for a rapid recovery in 2023 after a year where the sector has been hit by strict COVID measures. Want to feel more Christmas? Yeah, in? I'm waiting for it. Take a look at this. Look at him. <laughs> oh, it's not Father Christmas. It's, no, it's not. No, it's nearly. He's got his orange suit on. He's got his tree. He's got his tree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. How are you? From the Essex Bureau. Good, guys. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Jeff. I noticed yeah, you're trying to get, the, uh, get festive. The I, I Essex Bureau in full flow this evening. We are in full flow. Well, we had Lewis to keep us going, but well, I noticed you're at a certain Essex Bureau, not the other Essex Bureau yet, the 2023 Essex Bureau. No, that's uh, under refurbishment at the moment, and hopefully the grand opening uh, of the new Essex Bureau will be uh, some point next year. Uh, I won't tell the viewers what on earth I'm talking about, but safe to say, mum's cooking is great. Anyway, carry on, Arjun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ben, then, you know, <laughs> mum's bought the Christmas tree out, ready ready for the shot today. So uh, she's re- ready for that. But look, we're going to talk about China Tech because it's been a pretty bruising year uh, for the tech sector in China, for the tech companies. Regulatory pressure has continued, particularly on gaming, uh, but in particular, COVID zero policy over in China, which has really hurt the economy, has weighed on areas like consumer spending and advertising. And that's hit companies like Alibaba and Tencent. So investors are wondering what happens next year, uh, what uh, are the expectations? Well, analysts are expecting uh, some sort of recovery in terms of growth for some of these companies, which this year reported their slowest growth on record, but they are cautious. It won't be a V-shaped recovery. And that recovery is predicated really on three things. Firstly, how China uh, exits this zero COVID approach. And certainly we've seen so far, it's a messy business. It's not very smooth. And that's really a concern going forward. Can China get this under control and reinvigorate the economy, which will ultimately help a lot of these tech companies over there? Secondly, uh, regulatory calmness. We know over 2020 and 2021, there's been intense regulation on the Chinese tech sector. And this really hurt the growth of a lot of these companies. But analysts are expecting a little bit more of a predictable environment uh, when it comes to uh, regulation. Uh, they feel that there won't be any of these huge policy pushes that we've seen over the last two years, and that should help. And thirdly, uh, adapting business models. It's going to be predicated on how a lot of these companies like Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu uh, adapt their, their business models. We've already seen them exit some of these non-core businesses, these more unprofitable businesses, trimming some of the fat uh, as well. They've, they've done a rounds of layoffs as well this year as well. And clearly, there's been a lot of focus from management through earnings clauses here on new areas of growth. For example, 
with Alibaba cloud computing, with Tencent cloud computing, fintech, uh, and also its international gaming business as well. So really any kind of recovery is going to be predicated on that. And just in terms of outlook on stocks, you know, these have been absolutely battered um, this year and uh, as well. Now, a lot of uh, analysts have feel these are very cheap stocks uh, comparative to global tech companies. Analysts at Jeffrey say that Chinese tech companies are, are, are trading at about a four, 14 times 2023 20, PE versus 22 times for their global peers. Uh, and that could mean they, they make attractive investments if this uh, recovery does take hold, guys. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.